Welcome to Bakersfield First Assembly of God's podcast. Pastor James is fired up and ready to preach. I hope you enjoy this sermon. Good evening, everyone. I look forward to Wednesday nights when we can dig in God's word. So thank you for being here. Thank you for those that are watching online as well. We're still with Job. Question of the ages, why? Why did this happen to him? Why did things happen to us? And uh, the title of our lesson is, Though He Slay Me, Yet Will I Trust Him. It's one of, one of Job's famous sayings in our passage. And so we've gone from Job going on the defensive, attacking God, attacking his friends. And now he, then he moved on to be, he made him cynical. Sometimes that's happened when you ask the questions, why? It will make you cynical, and that's what happened to Job. And now we see that he's going to be challenged in how much he trusts God. And so we're going to jump ahead a few chapters. First is Job's friend Bildad, and then his friend Zophar. I've never dedicated a baby named Zophar. I'd like to do that someday. So if somebody wants to work on that, feel free. So let's first look at Bildad, the Shuhite. His name means son of contention or quarrelsome. There's a clue right there. It's amazing. In the Old Testament, in Bible times, they actually named children for a reason. Uh, And it was either because of who they were or who they were going to be. So the the names had real meaning, and that's why sometimes God had to change people's names. Because when uh, Jacob, which by the name James comes from... James is the English translation of the Hebrew Jacob, or Yaakov in Greek. But Jacob was born, and he he was a twin, and he had his hand wrapped around his brother's ankle. Esau was born first, and Jacob was born second. Jacob means one who replaces another through deception or, or force. Not a good name. And so that's why when Jacob was ready to uh, encounter God, God changed his name to Israel, which is Prince of God. It's, and so th- sometimes people were named for the, the personality and qualities they had or were going to have, and, J- and uh, Bildad was one of those. So we can see he's living up to his name, son of contention or quarrelsome. And as a Shuhite, he's probably from the region of Shua in Arabia, Now, what happened a lot of times is people would found a city and name it after themselves. And so that's the case here. And we see this in 1 Chronicles 132. The sons of Keturah, Abraham's concubine, were Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So Bildad probably came from that region, region and from that city. And he was possibly a prince, a chieftain, or a patriarch. All of Job's friends were rich and important men, and, and very well-renowned. And so Bildad the Shuhite is one of those. Now, he, we've, that's his person. Now let's look at his personality, his opinion. He gave three speeches, and he was very severe and stern in his tone, although less harsh than Zophar, who is going to come, but more so than Eliphaz. So Eliphaz was the first guy that spoke, probably the oldest one, and he was more measured. He was kind of beaten around the bush. Well, uh, we see here that, that it'd be a little different with Bildad. He's the first to blame Job's calamity on his sin, supposed sin. And he does it by inferring that it happened through his children. 
Look at Job 8.4. This is part of Bildad's speech, his first speech. When your children sinned against him, God gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Wow. Here again, the man has lost his 10 children and he, Bildad has the audacity to say your kids died because of their own sin. That's why they're no longer with you. Imagine you're grieving all of this and this is what your friend says to you. When you're, when you're grieving, it's important what is said and what is not said. Most of the time, just, we need to just keep our mouths shut and be present with people. And just, you know, that's how we can bring the most comfort. Why do you think Bildad would say something like this at this worst time? Why would he feel the need to say, your, your kids died because they sinned? Any idea? Why would, why would someone do that? Any idea? Yes. Okay. <laughs> now there is that is, that is a, a good a valid point. Job made sacrifices. There's there was validity to that. But would it still be necessary to be said? No. So that is an excellent point. There may be some truth in that. Yes. There's another perspective, excellent perspective, that, that he's trying to, to encourage Job in a strange way. <laughs> Just be encouraged. You didn't, they didn't die because of you. They died because of themselves. Yes. Maybe Job's children were not saved. It is possible because Job was making sacrifices for them. And we're going to find out when we get to the end of this study, you know, Job gets everything double back except his children. And we're going to, well, there may be a reason for that. So excellent perspectives. All, all of you had a great perspective. So let's, anybody else, why would he feel the need to say such a cruel, why would, why would he, I mean, think about if you've ever had a friend that has lost a loved one, would you say something like this? Don't feel bad. They probably, died. they probably sinned. That's why they died. Yes, and so what's going on here is Bildad is trying to prop up his theology. And, and so, but he does it in a very terrible way. He's more worried about protecting his false theology than he is protecting Job and his children. And so if you've ever had your belief system challenged then we get defensive. Remember, Job was on the defensive. And so Bildad's now on the defensive. Hey, wait a minute, because Job has pushed back on these guys. He said, you don't know what you guys are talking about. And so maybe Bildad got so blunt because he's trying to defend his, his retribution theology. Yes. Yeah, that's the other thing is everything they did was faulty. There was, there was some truth in it, but there was something missing from it. And so it's, it's interesting that he would come right out and say it, though, that, uh, that his children must have sinned and God gave them over. I mean, even if it's true, it's just the way he said it is so blunt and calloused. Uh, but again, that, that makes me think that 
He's tried to defend his own beliefs by making it harmful for Job. Excellent insights. Looks, here's another thing he said, Job 18.9 in the New Living Translation. The wicked will have neither children nor grandchildren, nor any survivors in the place where they lived. People in the West are appalled at their fate. People in the East are horrified. And they will say, this was the home of a wicked person, the place of one who rejected God. <laughs> wow. So he, he's, now remember, earlier on, he talks about the wicked, but he's inferring Job. He said, Job, this is the things that happen to wicked people. Therefore, you must be a wicked person. And guess what, Job? You don't have any kids, and you're not going to have any grandkids. So I'm telling you right now as a grandfather, that's salt in the wound like never before. Because there's nothing like grandkids. It's the greatest thing in the world. Yes, Ronnie. Yes. It's, it, it is true. And sometimes, too, you know, kids aren't perfect. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we, we raise them in the way of the Lord, the Bible says, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. But sometimes they may stray. And, and maybe Job's children had strayed. And so, again, Bildad is trying to, def, you know, make sure his children don't stray in the same way. And there may have been some envy and jealousy there. Good. Yes. Yes, and that's, that's the bottom line. Behind it all is personal pride. He's, he's, he's comparing himself. He thinks he's righteous, and Job is wicked, and none of that is true. Uh, but to, to say people will pass by and say this is the home of a wicked person, that, that's Job. I mean, he's saying that about his friend. <laughs> it's just terrible. So... What's your, what's your opinion? Uh, that's Bildad's opinion of Job. What's your opinion of Bildad? Would you like him to be a friend? A friend of me. <laughs> that's right. He sounds like a friend of me. Sometimes we get comments like this on Facebook, right? <laughs> you know, when you, you dare post something, you're going to get a reply. And sometimes it's not. It's amazing that people will say, will post something on social media they wouldn't say to your face. There's just that distance there. And you know, I've, I've, I read through social media from time to time, and I'll run across somebody that posts something, and I'm like, oh boy, they're going to they're gonna give a whole bunch of opinions. Here they come. You better buckle up. If you're going to put yourself out there like that, it's coming. I don't think it's right, but it's going to happen. Yes? If you were saying this to his face, what would you say that behind Very good, because that's, and they are saying this to his face, so... Can you imagine what they've conspired together, the three of them? Because they're all, they're really all saying the same thing. Job, you sinned, and that's why this all happened. So any other opinions of Bildad? Yes. What does it say about Job that he would pick friends like that? <laughs> okay, this is a pretty good point. You know, you, you, you're stuck with your relatives, but you can pick your friends, you know. So why would he pick friends like this? And maybe he didn't, and maybe go back to the jealousy thing, because Job was the greatest, in all the land, and uh, the most wealthy, and all of those things, and so he may have not even known what these friends were like. Truly, yes. I'm starting to get the idea that Job's friends are like, finally retribution. I knew you weren't so perfect. 
Yes, almost again that that jealous jealousy that and and Job does claim he's righteous and blameless, and so even Job has a little bit of pride in there too. But yeah, this may be their chance to get back at him. Yes. Right. But like us, if there's a storm uh, in the city, we go, oh, but don't you think we get to prejudge? Yes. And we're going to see that. That's an excellent point. We prejudge what is happening to somebody, and we'll see that just a little bit further down. Excellent. Yes. You know how there's people out there just waiting to see the mighty brought low? Yes. Waiting, you know, to go, ha. Yep. Yes. And the Bible says, do not rejoice when your enemy stumbles or it'll come upon you or the Lord will stop it. And so you're right. They may be relishing his, you know, they're, supposedly they're friends, but there's a certain glee that they have. Yes. True. I mean, if nothing else, he's learning what his real friends really think of him uh, behind his back. And so uh, not, not the friends you want to have, but but I, I think you're right. He's more of a zealot. He's fierce. You know, there's no grace. There's no mercy. Yes? Exactly. Not every trial is because we've done something wrong. And a lot of times, God allows us through these trials to help us grow. It's how faith is refined. But we, we wrongly assume what's going on in people's lives. And we need to be careful with that. And like I, I, I've said this before, I was an expert in parenting until I had children. That changed everything. Once I had kids, I was no longer an expert. Uh, and, and so we need to be careful not to judge other people's children, other people's marriages, other people's lives. We don't know what's going on there and what the Lord is doing there. Excellent point. Now, Zophar. Let's look at a good old Zophar. Is that like a movie with Adam, what's his name? Or I, I haven't seen the movie, but it sounds like some movie that, what's his name? Adam Sandler, yes. Zoolander, okay, it's kind of close. It started with a Z. <laughs> so here, let's look at Zophar, what kind of person he is. His name may mean chirping or twittering bird. <laughs> you know those kind that are annoying? Not a beautiful songbird. This is a chirping or twittering bird that wakes you up and drives you crazy. So again, his name was fitting. Now, he only gave two speeches, whereas the other friends gave three. But he's the first to charge Job openly with sin, arguing, in fact... He says, God didn't punish you enough. Wow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as bad as it is, he says, not only are you being punished, and he's Job's sharpest critic. He, he, you know, he doesn't pull any punches. His tone is hostile, condescending, dogmatic, and merciless. Look at an example, Job eleven fourteen. 14. He's speaking to Job. If you put away the sin that is in your hand... 
and allow no evil to dwell in your tent. Then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm without fear. Again, accusing them, this Job, all this happened is because of your sin. And if you'll just confess your sin, and, and Job had not sinned. So wouldn't it be wrong for him to confess a sin he did not commit? Because that's not being truthful. Yes. Uh, I've been through a, a few court situations, and in the middle of a trial, the attorneys go after each other, but afterwards or during the break, they're like best friends because they're all in the same business, you know, and this is just a business. I mean, it seems like they're mad at each other during the trial, but they're, it's, it's just part of the game, you know, and, and so these may have been political friends, you know, prestigious friends because... They're all wealthy. That's they're all you know. They probably went to an annual conference, you know, and and where all the big wigs and you know made studies of things. So he really didn't know his friends, and I think that's that's something that he's coming to realize. Wow, I thought these guys were for me, and they were sure for me when I was rich. They really liked me then, but they don't like me now. And here's another opinion of Zophar, Job twenty verse one. Then Zophar the Namathite. Reply, my troubled thoughts prompt me to answer because I'm greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke that dishonors me. Job rebuked him. And my understanding inspires me to reply. Verse 19, for the wicked has oppressed the poor and left him destitute. He has seized houses he did not build. Do you see what he's inferring? Job, you, you hurt poor people. That's why you're poor now. But the reality is, and Job will say this, that he helped the poor. He was generous to the poor. But they're trying to, again, they're trying to find something on this guy. And so he's inferring, well, you, you probably took houses from widows and orphans. And, and so what do you think of Zophar? How is he different than Bildad? They're not different, yes. They, they, they come from the same... Judgmental perspective. Were these Democrats? <laughs> I don't know what they were. <laughs> okay. Okay. There, there's some more arrogance there because he he says somebody rebuked me. I have to stand it. Well, somebody is right there. It's Job. We know who you rebuked you. But yeah, there is an arrogance there, a condescension. Yes. Ooh, which, which again may be that jealousy that Ronnie was talking about. So, oh, yeah, the reason you got wealthy was on the backs of the poor. And now it's showing up, Job. These, these guys were vicious and malicious. They were no friends whatsoever. And yet this is the kind of people they are. Yes. Yes. Job 
And, and you're right. We know this was spiritual warfare. Satan's in the book. He's in, the, he's in this whole thing. And, and it seems like, you know, when he went after him a second time, he didn't stop. It's still going on because Job talks about the terrors he's having at night and his skin with worms and, you know, and it, so the, the torture is continuing. This is a spiritual battle going on that is affecting the flesh. But something to really think about is as believers in Jesus Christ, the church should love. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. But if people come to a church that looks like Zophar and Bildad, oh my goodness, that's not who we're supposed to be. We should be a place of healing. Speaking the truth in love, there's no doubt about that. But there's a difference between speaking the truth in love and being judgmental. And so all three of Job's friends are completely convinced that only the wicked suffer pain and, and suffering. And therefore, Job and his children must have sinned. Now, here's a pause. Why don't they blame Job's wife? They're blaming Job. They're blaming his children. Why haven't they said a word about Job's wife? Any idea? She's not it? Oh, she's, she's dead. Well... She's not dead, okay. Can't, you can't blame someone that can fight back. That's a good, good point. What would she say? Yes, what else? Okay, she suffered the loss of the children, but he is suffering physically. And, and she did suffer the loss of, of the security, the wealth and the security. Uh, but, you know, maybe Zophar is afraid of her. <laughs> You know, they don't dare take her on because she already told Job, curse God and die. She seems like a, a tough lady. You know, she's going to tell you, you know what? You just need to curse God and die, you loser. And so the friends are like, we're not talking about her. Yes. Yeah, sadly, in that culture, they, it was seen more that way. And the, the man may have been the leader, but he also suffers the consequences of, of that leadership role. Uh, so that is true. Uh, but it, it, it would, there's some interest there as to why, you know, Job doesn't blame his wife. Uh, Job's friends don't, don't blame We don't hear from her again until the very end. Um, but, you know, they're blaming Job and his children. It's interesting they don't blame her. And they say the same things over and over again, just a different way. And Job says the same things over and over again, just a different way. Yes. Right. Which is directed to Job from his friend, just basically Jupiter and a donkey. And it's funny, they use all these, these, these uh, metaphors and similes and comparisons to make their point. But they're saying the same thing, just different ways, with different examples. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even 
That's a good point. And, and so why, why, are they, why would they assume Job's guilty? You're right. They knew him. They knew his character. So why wouldn't they defend him to God instead of accuse him? They, they had to know who he was. True. So they, they read into it and assumed because of the circumstances and their theology. Yes, they were, and, and I think their theology was an idol because it was false theology. It was a false god. But they would rather accuse their friend and pour salt in his wounds than to, to say, hey, wait a minute. We know this guy. He threw the whole, whole area as a man of a character. Yes. 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 Yeah, I, I think they're driven by fear. Because if their theology is not right, it can happen to them. And that's what they're scared to death of. And as if that could take it, keep it from happening. And here's the, here's the interesting fact. In reality, Job has their same theology. And so the book of Job is to correct, correct Job's theology. And all of their theology is off. And so has the feeling like, I'm, I know I'm righteous, so none of this should be happening to me. But and that's why he demands an audience with God, because it doesn't make sense, because he has the same theology as those guys. But you're right. Their defensiveness is rooted in fear that if their theology is wrong, then this can happen to them. Excellent point. Also, if their theology is right and they're defending God or Job to God and he sins, then now they're sinning and it will be poured out on them just the same. And that's the other thing. You know, if, if they do defend Job, then, then they're against God, and they don't want to do that. And that's, that is true. But how many know they, they, can, they can be there for their friend without, you know, condemning God? Because you certainly don't want to do that. Well, let's look at what Job has to say after these two friends say their piece. Job, Job 13.1. I have seen all this. This is Job speaking. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. I think that's a great line. You know, you're supposed to be here healing me and you're, you're hurting me. If only you would be altogether silent for you, that would be wisdom. Ooh. Hear now my argument. Listen to the plea of my lips. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Wow. Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Job's saying, you're on God's side, not mine. Will you argue the case for God? Would, you, would it turn out well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive men? Job's really hammering back here. He would surely rebuke you if you secretly showed partiality. Would not his splendor tie you? Would not the dread of him fall on you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Wow. Job knows how to fire back. And Job feels that his friends are saying nothing new. He also claims he's just as smart as they are, just as well-educated and learned and experienced. 
And he uses sarcasm in, in trying to get them to shut their mouths. But Job also says, why don't you put the shoe on the other foot? What would you do in my situation? Do you think they could fool God as you're able to fool people? How well would they stand up to what Job is going through? Not so well. In fact, at the end of the book, God judged Job's friends the same way they had judged him. And if it weren't for Job stepping in and praying for his friends, God was poised to punish his friends. And so they, they judged Job wrongly, and so it was going to bring judgment to them. And God said, you better have Job pray for you, or it's toast, buddy. And so, and what's amazing is we'll see, Job could have said, really? Maybe I don't need to pray for them. But it, it again shows the character of Job that he would intercede for his friends. Yeah, there's so much integrity. Our, number one, our standing with God is directly related to how we treat other people. Let me know that our vertical relationship it will, can be broken if the horizontal relationship isn't healthy. That means with our spouses, with our families, with believers, with people. And so we can't mistreat people and think we're okay with God. Because again, he says, that's how they'll know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. And so we, I, and I have seen this at times. I've seen, my wife, when we were in college, was a waitress. And the worst people were the Christian groups that would come in to the restaurant. And here's Jolene trying to witness to her friends and they say, are you Christians like they are? <laughs> She's like, no, not like they are. Uh, they were the worst tippers. They were the most demanding. They were most insulting. And Jolene dreaded because they would come in every like Tuesday night after Bible study into the restaurant and just, you know, boss around the waitresses. And, and it, it, you know, we can't treat people like that and think it's a, we're okay with God. We're not. And Job's friends cannot do this and not be running a risk of being wrong with God. Yes. And it's so much more important if we're going to have a good relationship with him to be able to coexist with other people. And, and it's, it's one of our best testimonies if, if we treat people well. And I'm telling you what, in today's world, just a little bit of kindness is out of the norm and will go a long way. Just treating people with kindness and respect is you, get, you won't even have to you know, wear your Jesus shirt, that'll shine. Uh, for people, and so, but we we can't just ignore that. We can't say, you know, I'm holy, I'm righteous, if we're if we're if we're mistreating people. So, in our dealings with people, the same measure we use toward them will be measured to us. Look at Luke six thirty seven. Jesus said, "Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given back to you. A good measure." Pressed down, shaking together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, one of those universal spiritual principles, we reap what we sow, and whatever we measure out to others is measured back to us. And so there is a time to judge. The Bible isn't condemning all judging, because sometimes you have to judge someone 
that is out of line or, or is in an unhealthy place or whatever it may be. But the key is that we don't judge unjustly or unfairly or inconsistently. So we need to be careful. The Bible says, first show mercy and then judgment because mercy triumphs over judgment. Our first reaction should be mercy. And if there's not a response to mercy, sometimes there has to be judgment. And so Job's friends totally misjudged him. If he was this bad a sinner, you think they would have seen it all these years. I mean, they, you think they'd have known he stole homes from widows and orphans. I mean, they're, they're accusing him of all this wrongdoing, but had never seen it before. The only, the only reason they're accusing him now is because he lost everything. And so God was going to judge them. And here's the other thing. In many situations, we're not in a place to judge somebody for something we've never gone through. We have to really step back and say, should I make a judgment on this when I haven't been through this? And so Job's friends are judging him and they have not experienced one iota of what he's gone through. Yes? Yes. And that's the Matthew passage of the same passage in Luke. We have to get the board out of our own eye before we get a speck out of our brother's eye. And so before you judge anyone, judge yourself. And, when, and if you do have to judge someone, watch the measure you use. Is it a gallon measuring cup? You know, what? because whatever you, when, when there is a time to make a judgment, first judge yourself and then judge with, you know that the measure you use is going to be measured to you. So those are things we have to keep in mind before we make a judgment call. And it's, it's first self-examination. And, you know, that, that is a spiritual principle of getting back what you give out, especially with other people. And Job says, I don't want to debate with you guys anymore. Instead, if I'm done with you guys. I'm going directly to God. And so Job shifts his argument to God. And he, but the friends still chime in, as we'll see. And Job wants to argue his case directly with God. Oh, he's going to get a chance. You better not. You know, we may say that, God, I want to know, you know, because he may tell you. He may come down with Job. So Job wants to put God on the witness stand. But we've got to re realize this, number two. God does not need to defend himself to us. He does not owe us an answer. And there are just some things in life, as we see Job say, that are too wonderful for us to know. So what do we do in those situations where God defend himself to us, explain to us why these things have happened and what's going on? What do we do in a situation like that? How are we supposed to respond? Pray? Yes? Yes? Trust and obey is the, is the only way, especially when we don't have the answers, when, when we don't have all the information. But this is hard for me, but I know it's true. God does not owe me an answer. God owes me nothing. He gave his only son. He, he's given everything, and he owes me nothing more. Now, I do believe God does bless us, and God gives us more, but he doesn't owe us any of that. And the danger is when we get too far along in our own self-righteousness, we start thinking God owes us. 
And I'm telling you, that is a dangerous place to be because you will be disappointed. And, so, and, and he will bring us to a place to remind us. Sorry. I'm getting a little carried away. God had to calm me down there. But this is, it's hard for us to accept, but you will have more peace in your life when we don't demand God to answer us. When we, we can ask, God, would, would you tell me why? But, the, but part of faith, the journey, is not knowing why and yet still obeying. Yes? It's important in those moments to understand how, or, or try to understand for him how much he loves us. Yes. You know, when, when I get in a situation like that, I would say, I say, Daddy, I know I'm the apple of your eye. Yeah. I know you love me. And I know your nature is to love me. I know I'm irresistible to you, and, but by your grace, but I know you're with me always. And yeah. when we start to question and doubt God, we forget how much he loves us. That's so good. And say, God is love, God is wise, and God is just. And when we realize those things, he doesn't owe us an answer, but we should trust him anyway because of those things. He loves us so much that he gave his son. How, what more could he give? And so the, the enemy will get you to question God's love for you. And it's what Satan did to Eve. Did God really say? He puts that doubt that God's holding back on something. He's, you know, he's, he's being selfish. He's not being kind. And Satan will try to just plant that seed in your, in your heart and your mind. And we have to stop and say, no, God is love. God is kind. God is just. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's excellent that you put that you put that in context. We don't always realize those scriptures are right there together, and so we have to humble ourselves and cast our cares in those situations where we don't have the answers. Yes. Yes, and, and I, I agree with you. Most Christians question whether God loves them. Instead of, you know, I don't run into a lot of people that think that they're overloved by God. They just wonder, how could God ever love me? They have such a low, low self-image, which is, you know, it's not our self-image. It's, it's the Lord in us. But sometimes we bring that from our hurts and our pain, and we don't, we don't believe God loves us. We question the love of God. And again, that's Satan's first attempt is to get you to question God's love. And because when we, when we know God loves us, then we are free to obey his commands. And that's what, that's what the Bible says. This is love, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, 1 John 4. And so when you know God 
loves you, and, and we do believe in the fear of the Lord too. Those go hand in hand, the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord. When you know God loves you, it's easier to obey. It's easier to live that Christian life because you live it in liberty. You live it in the love of the Lord and not just in, in the fear of punishment. Yes? Amen. We do. And, and when we get to heaven, we're going to find out all that God carried for us, and yet we doubt it. And so let's pray. God, thank you that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what trial or tribulation, one thing is certain, you love us, and you will never stop loving us. And Lord, I thank you for that love that inspires us to follow you, to love you back. We love because you first loved us. We couldn't even love without you. And so, Lord, thank you that you loved us first. And may we live in that freedom knowing that you love us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll pick up next week. You've been listening to Bakersfield First Assembly's weekly broadcast. BFA is located on the corner of California and Marilla Way. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. in person and online on Facebook and YouTube. For more information, check out our website, bakersfieldfirst.com, or download our app from the App Store.